Section 3 of Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Buchernar. Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Paul Karras. Section 3. First part of the Transcendental Problem. How is pure mathematics possible? Section 6. Here is a great and established branch of knowledge, encompassing even now a wonderfully large domain, and promising an unlimited extension in the future. Yet it carries with it thoroughly apodeictical certainty, that is, absolute necessity, which therefore rests upon no empirical grounds. Consequently, it is a pure product of reason, and moreover is thoroughly synthetical, here the question arises, how then is it possible for human reason to produce a cognition of this nature entirely a priori? Does not this faculty, which produces mathematics, as it neither is nor can be based upon experience, presuppose some ground of cognition a priori, which lies deeply hidden, but which might reveal itself by these its effects, if their first beginnings were not but diligently ferreted out? Section 7 but we find that all mathematical cognition has this peculiarity. It must first exhibit its concept in a visual form, on chawung, and indeed a priori, therefore in a visual form which is not empirical, but pure. Without this, mathematics cannot take a single step. Hence its judgments are always visual, which is to say, intuitive, whereas philosophy must be satisfied with discursive judgments from mere concepts and though it may illustrate its doctrines through a visual figure, can never derive them from it. This observation on the nature of mathematics gives us a clue to the first and highest condition of its possibility, which is that some non-sensuous visualization, called pure intuition, or reine Anschauung, must form its basis, in which all its concepts can be exhibited or constructed in concreto and yet a priori. If we can find out this pure intuition and its possibility, we may thence easily explain how synthetical propositions a priori are possible in pure mathematics, and consequently how this science itself is possible. Empirical intuition, which is to say sense perception, enables us without difficulty to enlarge the concept which we frame of an object of intuition, or sense perception, by new predicates, which intuition, that is, sense perception, itself presents synthetically in experience. Pure intuition, which is to say the visualization of forms in our imagination, from which everything sensual, that is, every thought of material qualities, is excluded, does so likewise, only with this difference, that in the latter case the synthetical judgment is a priori certain and apodeictical, in the former only a posteriori and empirically certain because this latter contains only that which occurs in contingent empirical intuition, but the former, that which must necessarily be discovered in pure intuition. Here, intuition, being an intuition a priori, is, before all experience, that is to say, before any perception of particular objects, inseparably conjoined with its concept. Section 8. But with this step, our perplexity seems rather to increase than to lessen, for the question now is, how is it possible to intuit, in a visual form, anything a priori? An intuition, 
which is to say a visual sense perception is such a representation as immediately depends upon the presence of the object hence it seems impossible to intuit from the outset a priori because intuition would in that event take place without either a former or a present object to refer to and by consequence could not be intuition concepts indeed are such that we can easily form some of them a priori which is to say such as contain nothing but the thought of an object in general and we need not find ourselves in an immediate relation to the object take for instance the concepts of quantity of cause etc but even these require in order to make them understood a certain concrete use that is an application to some sense experience on xiaong by which an object of them is given us but how can the intuition of the object its visualization precede the object itself section nine if our intuition that is our sense experience were perforce of such a nature as to represent things as they are in themselves there would not be any intuition a priori but intuition would be always empirical for i can only know what is contained in the object in itself when it is present and given to me it is indeed even then incomprehensible how the visualizing on xiaong of a present thing should make me know this thing as it is in itself as its properties cannot migrate into my faculty of representation but even granting this possibility a visualizing of that sort would not take place a priori that is before the object were presented to me for without this latter fact no reason of a relation between my representation and the object can be imagined unless it depend upon a direct inspiration therefore in one way only can my intuition on xiaong anticipate the actuality of the object and be a cognition a priori which is to say if my intuition contains nothing but the form of sensibility antedating in my subjectivity all the actual impressions through which i am affected by objects for that objects of sense can only be intuited according to this form of sensibility i can know a priori hence it follows that propositions which concern this form of sensuous intuition only are possible and valid for objects of the senses as also conversely the intuitions which are possible a priori can never concern any other things than objects of our senses section ten accordingly it is only the form of the sensuous intuition by which we can intuit things a priori but by which we can know objects only as they appear to us to our senses not as they are in themselves and this assumption is absolutely necessary if synthetical propositions a priori be granted as possible or if in case they actually occur their possibility is to be comprehended and determined beforehand now the intuitions which pure mathematics lays at the foundation of all its cognitions and judgments which appear at once apodeictic and necessary are space and time for mathematics must first have all its concepts in intuition and pure mathematics in pure intuition that is it must construct them if it proceeded in any other way it would be impossible to make any headway for mathematics proceeds not analytically by dissection of concepts but synthetically and if pure intuition be wanting there is nothing in which the matter for synthetical judgments a priori can be given geometry is based upon the pure intuition of space arithmetic accomplishes its concept of numbers by the successive addition of units in time and pure mechanics especially cannot attain its concepts of motion without employing the representation of time both representations however are only intuitions for if we omit from the empirical intuitions of bodies and their alterations motion 
everything empirical or belonging to sensation, space and time still remain, which are therefore pure intuitions that lie a priori at the basis of the empirical. Hence they can never be omitted, but at the same time, by their being pure intuitions a priori, they prove that they are mere forms of our sensibility, which must precede all empirical intuition, or perception of actual objects, and conformably to which objects can be known a priori, but only as they appear to us. Section 11. The problem of the present section is therefore solved. Pure mathematics as synthetical cognition a priori is only possible by referring to no other objects than those of the senses. At the basis of their empirical intuition lies a pure intuition of space and of time, which is a priori. This is possible because the latter intuition is nothing but the mere form of sensibility, which precedes the actual appearance of the objects, in that it, in fact, makes them possible. Yet this faculty of intuiting a priori affects not the matter of the phenomenon, that is, the sense element in it, for this constitutes that which is empirical, but its form, namely space and time. Should any man venture to doubt that these are determinations adhering not to things in themselves, but to their relation to our sensibility, I should be glad to know how it can be possible to know the constitution of things a priori, namely, before we have any acquaintance with them, and before they are presented to us. Such, however, is the case with space and time. But this is quite comprehensible, as soon as both count for nothing more than formal conditions of our sensibility, while the objects count merely as phenomena. For then the form of the phenomenon, that is, pure intuition, can by all means be represented as proceeding from ourselves, that is, a priori. Section 12. In order to add something by way of illustration and confirmation, we need only watch the ordinary and necessary procedure of geometers. All proofs of the complete congruence of two given figures, where the one can in every respect be substituted for the other, come ultimately to this, that they be made to coincide, which is evidently nothing else than a synthetical proposition resting upon immediate intuition, and this intuition must be pure, or given a priori, otherwise the proposition could not rank as epideictically certain, but would have empirical certainty only. In that case, it can only be said that it is always found to be so, and holds good only as far as our perception reaches, that everywhere space, which, in its entirety, is itself no longer the boundary of another space, has three dimensions, and that space cannot in any way have more, is based on the proposition that no more than three lines can intersect at right angles in one point. But this proposition cannot by any means be shown from concepts, but rests immediately on intuition, and indeed on a pure and a priori intuition, because it is apodeictically certain that we can require a line to be drawn to infinity in indefinitum, or that a series of changes, for example spaces traversed by motion, shall be infinitely continued, presupposes a representation of space and time which can only attach to intuition, namely so far as it in itself is bounded by nothing, for from concepts it could never be inferred. Consequently, the bases of mathematics actually are pure intuitions, which make its synthetical and apodeictically valid propositions possible. Hence, our transcendental deduction of the notions of space and of time explains at the same time the possibility of pure mathematics. Without some such deduction, its truth may be granted, but its existence could by no means be understood, and we must assume that everything which can be given to our senses, to the external senses in space, to the internal one in time, is intuited by us as it appears to us, not as it is in itself.
Section 13. Those who cannot yet rid themselves of the notion that space and time are actual qualities in hearing and things in themselves may exercise their acumen on the following paradox. When they have in vain attempted its solution and are free from prejudices, at least for a few moments, they will suspect that the degradation of space and of time to mere forms of our sensuous intuition may perhaps be well founded. If two things are quite equal in all respects, as much as can be ascertained by all means possible, quantitatively and qualitatively, it must follow that the one can in all cases and under all circumstances replace the other, and this substitution would not occasion the least perceptible difference. This in fact is true of plane figures in geometry, but some spherical figures exhibit notwithstanding a complete internal agreement, such a contrast in their external relation that the one figure cannot possibly be put in the place of the other. For instance, two spherical triangles on opposite hemispheres which have an arc of the equator as their common base, may be quite equal. But as regards sides and angles, so that nothing is to be found in either, if it be described for itself alone and completed, that would not equally be applicable to both, and yet the one cannot be put in the place of the other, being situated upon the opposite hemisphere. Here, then, is an internal difference between the two triangles, which difference our understanding cannot describe as internal, and which only manifests itself by external relations in space. But I shall adduce examples taken from common life that are more obvious still. What can be more similar in every respect and in every part more alike to my hand and to my ear than their images in a mirror? And yet I cannot put such a hand as is seen in the glass in the place of its archetype. For if this is a right hand, that in the glass is a left one, and the image or reflection of the right ear is a left one which can never serve as a substitute for the other. There are in this case no internal differences which our understanding could determine by thinking alone, yet the differences are internal as the senses teach, for, notwithstanding their complete equality and similarity, the left hand cannot be enclosed in the same bounds as the right one, they are not congruent, the glove of one hand cannot be used for the other. What is the solution? These objects are not representations of things as they are in themselves, and as the pure understanding would cognize them, but sensuous intuitions that is, appearances, the possibility of which rests upon the relation of certain things unknown in themselves to something else, namely, to our sensibility. Space is the form of the external intuition of this sensibility, and the internal determination of every space is only possible by the determination of its external relation to the whole space, of which it is a part, in other words, by its relation to the external sense. That is to say, the part is only possible through the whole, which is never the case with things in themselves, as objects of the mere understanding, but with appearances only. Hence the difference between similar and equal things, which are not yet congruent, for instance, two symmetric helices, cannot be made intelligible by any concept, but only by the relation to the right and the left hand, which immediately refers to intuition. Remark 1. Pure mathematics, and especially pure geometry, can only have objective reality on condition that they refer to objects of sense. But in regard to the latter, the principle holds good that our sense representation is not a representation of things in themselves, but of the way in which they appear to us. Hence it follows that the propositions of geometry are not the results of a mere creation of our poetic imagination, and that therefore they cannot be referred with assurance to actual objects, but rather that they are necessarily valid of space, and consequently of all that may be found in space, because space is nothing else than the form of all external appearances and it is this form alone in which objects of sense can be given. Sensibility, 
the form of which is the basis of geometry, is that upon which the possibility of external appearance depends. Therefore, these appearances can never contain anything but what geometry prescribes to them. It would be quite otherwise if the senses were so constituted as to represent objects as they are in themselves, for then it would not by any means follow from the conception of space, which with all its properties serves to the geometer as an a priori foundation, together with what is thence inferred, must be so in nature. The space of the geometer would be considered a mere fiction, and it would not be credited with objective validity because we cannot see how things must of necessity agree with an image of them which we make spontaneously and previous to our acquaintance with them. But if this image, or rather this formal intuition, is the essential property of our sensibility, by means of which alone objects are given to us, and if this sensibility represents not things in themselves, but their appearances, we shall easily comprehend, and at the same time indisputably prove, that all external objects of our world of sense must necessarily coincide in the most rigorous way with the propositions of geometry, because sensibility by means of its form of external intuition, namely by space, the same with which the geometer is occupied, makes those objects at all possible as mere appearances. It will always remain a remarkable phenomenon in the history of philosophy that there was a time when even mathematicians, who at the same time were philosophers, began to doubt not of the accuracy of their geometrical propositions so far as they concerned space, but of their objective validity and the applicability of this concept itself and of all its corollaries to nature. They showed much concern whether a line in nature might not consist of physical points, and consequently that true space and the object might consist of simple, discrete parts, while the space which the geometer has in his mind, being continuous, cannot be such. They did not recognize that this mental space renders possible the physical space, that is, the extension of matter, that this pure space is not at all a quality of things in themselves, but a form of our sensuous faculty of representation, and that all objects in space are mere appearances, that is, not things in themselves, but representations of our sensuous intuition. But such is the case, for the space of the geometer is exactly the form of sensuous intuition which we find a priori in us, and contains the ground of the possibility of all external appearances according to their form, and the latter must necessarily and most rigidly agree with the propositions of the geometer which he draws not from any fictitious concept, but from the subjective basis of all external phenomena, which is sensibility itself. In this and no other way can geometry be made secure as to the undoubted objective reality of its propositions against all the intrigues of a shallow metaphysics, which is surprised at them, the geometrical propositions, because it has not traced them to the sources of their concepts. Remark 2. Whatever is given us as object must be given us in intuition. All our intuition, however, takes place by means of the senses only. The understanding intuits nothing, but only reflects. And as we have just shown that the senses never and in no manner enable us to know things in themselves, but only their appearances, which are mere representations of the sensibility, we conclude that all bodies together with the space in which they are must be considered nothing but mere representations in us, and exist nowhere but in our thoughts. You will say, is not this manifest idealism? Idealism consists in the assertion that there are none but thinking beings, all other things which we think are perceived in intuition, being nothing but representations in the thinking beings, to which no object external to them corresponds in fact. Whereas I say that things as objects of our senses existing outside us are given, but we know nothing of what they may be in themselves, knowing only their appearances, that is, the representations which they cause in us by affecting our senses. 
Consequently, I grant by all means that there are bodies without us, that is, things which though quite unknown to us as to what they are in themselves, we yet know by the representations which their influence on our sensibility procures us, and which we call bodies, a term signifying merely the appearance of the thing which is unknown to us, but not therefore less actual. Can this be termed idealism? It is the very contrary. Long before Locke's time, but assuredly since him, it has been generally assumed and granted without detriment to the actual existence of external things, that many of their predicates may be said to belong not to the things in themselves, but to their appearances, and to have no proper existence outside our representation. Heat, color, and taste, for instance, are of this kind. Now, if I go farther, and for weighty reasons rank as mere appearances the remaining qualities of bodies also, which are called primary, such as extension, place, and in general space, with all that which belongs to it, impenetrability or materiality, space, etc., no one in the least can induce the reason of its being inadmissible. As little as the man who admits colors not to be properties of the object in itself, but only as modifications of the sense of sight, should on that account be called an idealist. So little can my system be named idealistic, merely because I find that more. Nay, all the properties which constitute the intuition of a body belong merely to its appearance. The existence of the thing that appears is thereby not destroyed, as in genuine idealism, but it is only shown that we cannot possibly know it by the senses as it is in itself. I should be glad to know what my assertions must be in order to avoid all idealism. Undoubtedly, I should say, that the representations of space is not only perfectly conformable to the relation which our sensibility has to objects that I have said, but that it is quite similar to the object, an assertion in which I can find as little meaning as if I said that the sensation of red has a similarity to the property of vermilion, which in me excites the sensation. Remark 3. Hence we may at once dismiss an easily foreseen but futile objection, that by admitting the ideality of space and of time the whole sensible world would be turned into a mere sham. At first, all philosophical insight into the nature of sensuous cognition was spoiled by marking the sensibility merely a confused mode of representation, according to which we still know things as they are, but without being able to reduce everything in this our representation to a clear consciousness. Whereas proof is offered by us that sensibility consists not in this logical distinction of clearness and obscurity, but in the genetical one of the origin of cognition itself. For sensuous perception represents things not at all as they are, but only the mode in which they affect our senses, and consequently by sensuous perception appearances only and not things themselves are given to the understanding for reflection. After this necessary corrective, an objection rises from an unpardonable and almost intentional misconception, as if my doctrine turned all the things of the world of sense into mere illusion. When an appearance is given us, we are still quite free as to how we should judge the matter. The appearance depends upon the senses, but the judgment upon the understanding, and the only question is whether in the determination of the object there is truth or not. But the difference between truth and dreaming is not ascertained by the nature of the representations, which are referred to objects, for they are the same in both cases, but by their connection according to those rules which determine the coherence of the representations in the concept of an object, and by ascertaining whether they can subsist together in experience or not. And it is not the fault of the appearances if our cognition takes illusion for truth, that is, if the intuition by which an object is given us is considered a concept of the thing, or of its existence also, 
which the understanding can only think. The senses represent to us the paths of the planets as now progressive, now retrogressive, and herein is neither falsehood nor truth, because as long as we hold this path to be nothing but appearance, we do not judge of the objective nature of their motion. But as a false judgment may easily arise when the understanding is not on its guard against the subjective mode of representation being considered objective, we say they appear to move backward. It is not the senses, however, which must be charged with the illusion, but the understanding, whose province alone it is to give an objective judgment on appearances. Thus, even if we did not at all reflect on the origin of our representations, whenever we connect our intuitions of space, whatever they may contain, in space and in time, according to the rules of the coherence of all cognition and experience, illusion or truth will arise according as we are negligent or careful. It is merely a question of the use of sensuous representations in the understanding, and not of their origin. In the same way, if I consider all the representations of the senses, together with their form, space, and time, to be nothing but appearances, and space and time to be a mere form of the sensibility, which is not to be met within objects out of it, and if I make use of these representations in reference to possible experience only, there is nothing in my regarding them as appearances that can lead astray or cause illusion, for all that they can correctly cohere according to rules of truth and experience, for all that they can correctly cohere according to rules of truth and experience. Thus all the propositions of geometry hold good of space as well as of all objects of the senses, consequently of all possible experience, whether I consider space as a mere form of the sensibility, or as something cleaving to the things themselves. In the former case, however, I comprehend how I can know a priori these propositions concerning all the objects of external intuition. Otherwise, everything else as regards all possible experience remains just as if I had not departed from the vulgar view. But if I venture to go beyond all possible experience with my notions of space and time, which I cannot refrain from doing if I proclaim them qualities inherent in things in themselves, for what should prevent me from letting them hold good of the same things, even though my senses would be different and unsuited to them, then a grave error may arise due to illusion. For thus I would proclaim to be universally valid what is merely a subjective condition of the intuition of things, and sure only for all objects of sense, namely, for all possible experience. I would refer this condition to things in themselves, and do not limit it to the conditions of experience. My doctrine of the ideality of space and of time, therefore, far from reducing the whole sensible world to mere illusion, is the only means of securing the application of one of the most important cognitions, that which mathematics propounds a priori, to actual objects, and of preventing its being regarded as mere illusion. For without this observation it would be quite impossible to make out whether the intuitions of space and time, which we borrow from no experience, and which yet lie in our representation a priori, are not mere phantasms of our brain, to which objects do not correspond, at least not adequately, and consequently, whether we have been able to show its unquestionable validity with regard to all the objects of the sensible world, just because they are mere appearances. Secondly, though these my principles make appearances of the representations of the senses, they are so far from turning the truth of experience into mere illusion, that they are rather the only means of preventing the transcendental illusion by which metaphysics has hitherto been deceived, leading to the childish endeavor of catching up bubbles, because appearances, which are mere representations, were taken for things in themselves. Here originated the remarkable event of the antimony of reason, which I shall mention by and by, and which is destroyed by the single observation that appearance, as long as it is employed in experience, 
produces truth, but the moment it transgresses the bounds of experience and consequently becomes transcendent, produces nothing but illusion. Inasmuch, therefore, as I leave to things as we obtain them by the senses of our actuality, and only limit our sensuous intuition of these things to this, that they represent in no respect, not even in the pure intuitions of space and of time, anything more than mere appearance of those things, but never their constitution in themselves. This is not a sweeping illusion invented for nature by me. My protestation, too, against all charges of idealism, is so valid and clear as even to seem superfluous, were there not incompetent judges, who, while they would have an old name for every deviation from their perverse though common opinion, and never judge of the spirit of philosophical nomenclature, but cling to the letter only, are ready to put their own conceits in the place of well-defined notions, and thereby deform and distort them. I have myself given this my theory the name of transcendental idealism, but that cannot authorize anyone to confound it, either with the empirical idealism of Descartes, indeed his was only an insoluble problem, owing to which he thought everyone at liberty to deny the existence of the corporeal world, because it could never be proved satisfactorily, or with the mystical and visionary idealism of Berkeley, against which and other similar phantasms our critique contains the proper antidote. My idealism concerns not the existence of things, the doubting of which, however, constitutes idealism in the ordinary sense, since it never came into my head to doubt it, but it concerns the sensuous representation of things, to which space and time especially belong. Of these, namely space and time, consequently of all appearances in general, I have only shown that they are neither things, but mere modes of representation, nor determinations belonging to things in themselves. But the word transcendental, which with me means a reference of our cognition, that is, not to things, but only to the cognitive faculty, was meant to obviate this misconception. Yet rather than give further occasion to it by this word, I now retract it, and desire this idealism of mine to be called critical. But if it be really an objectionable idealism to convert actual things, not appearances, into mere representations, by what names shall we call him who conversely changes mere representations to things? It may, I think, be called dreaming idealism, in contradistinction to the former, which may be called visionary, both of which are to be refuted by my transcendental, or better, critical idealism. End of section 3. Recording by Buchernar.